Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. The word lullaby is derived from Jewish folklore, meaning Lilith Abbey, which, when translated into English, simply means Lilith go away. Lilith was said to have been a succubus, and the term lullaby was coined in order to protect and safeguard children. Most lullabies and nursery rhymes were created and used primarily as educational tools to teach children about past events, as well as to instill morals and principles. Over time, the term lullaby stuck and we now think of it as a soothing song used to calm children. However, history shows us that some lullabies are anything but soothing, and their real meanings are much darker and more sinister. Once upon a time, on a podcast called The Missing Chapter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of The Missing Chapter. I am Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Before we get into today's episode, let's talk some coffee. We are brewing today the chocolate cannoli from Utica Coffee Roasting Company out of Utica, New York. It is sweet. It is creamy. It's chocolate swirled with Utica's favorite pastry, of course, the cannoli. Incredible uh, blend here today, Phil. And I think it's going to be mixed with an incredible episode. What do you think? Yeah. You know what? The last time we did a chat, Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, it was our top five war movies of all time. Yep. And the feedback we got was probably the best that we've gotten since we started doing the podcast. You and I, I think, enjoyed that. If we're you know, putting on a list which, uh, which episodes we've enjoyed the most, that's probably at the top of both of ours. I would agree. Yeah. And in doing this research, boy, we came across some really good things, mm-hmm. some really surprising facts. And, you know, having two young children of my own, you having a young family with two young daughters. You know, we're, we're familiar with everything on this list, as I think most listeners will be. But the background to these, you know, like we said in the intro, are nothing like what you kind of assume they're about. Nothing is what what it appears exactly. when and it comes I, to nursery rhymes. There's there, It's a weird mix because you have all these interesting um, connotations. You have all these uh, obscure references that maybe some things you don't really understand, which we'll explain today. But oddly enough, they they pair that with some really, you know, children-esque kind of music. And some of them, let's just face it, especially when we play them for our listeners today, they're just downright creepy. Yeah, creepy for, <laughs> I think, is the perfect word for it. <laughs> so here we go. The Missing Chapters Top 5 Nursery Rhymes in No Particular Order. Bring around the rosy pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Well, everybody, you probably figured out the first one we want to talk about is Ring Around the Rosie. And what we actually decided to do was actually play the version of each nursery rhyme to introduce it to you. So the first one, Ring Around the Rosie, there's a lot of history involved in this. And, Phil, it's quite dark. Oh, um, to say the least. Phil. To say the least. Mm-hmm. So this is actually about, which some of us may have known prior to this episode, 
but we do want to address it. This is technically about the bubonic plague. I mean, out of all things you want to sing to your kids, why ring around the rosy? It's a great question. And oddly enough, my kids actually just sang this a couple of weeks ago uh, in the in our living room. So let's talk about this. Let's break this, this um, song down bit by bit. Ring around the rosy. So the rosy ring around um, these bumps on these people's skin is actually called, these bumps are called bubos. That's where we get the term bubonic plague. Now, once someone becomes infected with the bubonic plague, uh, there's a few things that could happen. One of the things is that your body, of course, has this overreaction to the, to the um, you know, infection, and then the, the skin starts to basically melt from the inside out, and it first starts with these bumps. And they get, of course, like we just said, a rosy ring around those bumps. So what do you do to kind of at least mitigate the symptoms? You got to bring a pocket full of posy. Well, why is that? Back then, they didn't really understand germs and how to get rid of some of these infections. So the only thing they could think of was, as as horrifying and deadly of a disease this really is, um, they knew that there was some horrific smell that came with this bubonic plague. Mm -hmm. And they kind of associated that with, you know, death and bad smelling things. What they were actually smelling was decomposing flesh, but we'll, we won't go into that much further. So they figured the cure um, was actually smelling sweet things. So of course, if you're going to associate death with horrible smelling things, then you would of course associate life with sweet smelling. So it was very customary for this time period to carry around bouquets of flowers for relief from the odors that overran towns and cities. Also, if you've ever seen these bird-like masks, they actually put the posies in the nose of these masks, and that became pretty synonymous with the plague. Flower petals were placed in those long beaks uh, to help the foul stench. That's uh, quite the description, Phil. Quite, <laughs> quite the description. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry to gross you out, but that's unfortunately the, the harsh history of Ring Around the Rosie. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. To be consistent with this kind of horrific nursery rhyme, ashes are referring to the numbers of bodies that had to be cremated. And of course, we all fall down refers to the innumerable amounts of people dying from the plague. Now, Phil, you brought up the bubonic plague, obviously, with this particular nursery rhyme. And after having experienced what we all experienced in 2020, I wanted to throw out some uh, some additional facts about some terms that we've been you know, becoming very familiar with in our, in our culture and our society over the last year, year and a half. Starting in 1348, soon after the plague arrived in cities like Venice, Milan, city officials put emergency public health measures in place that included 30 days mandatory quarantine on their boat to ensure that the crew, anyone on the vessel coming into these cities, was healthy and not infected. Back to 1348, 1348 right. Wow. We're starting to see okay. the first quarantine as, as a result of the Black Death and the bubonic plague. The Adriatic port city of Ragusa, which is modern-day Dubrovnik, was the first to actually pass legislation and implement laws requiring the mandatory quarantine of all incoming ships and trade caravans in order to screen for infection. Kind of interesting, Phil. The 30-day period, period stipulated in the 1377 quarantine order, was known in Italian as a Trentino. Okay. The English word quarantine, meanwhile, is a direct descendant of quarantino, the Italian word for a 40-day period. Huh. So why the 10-day discrepancy? I was just about we to We start ask. with a 30-day, we associate quarantine with 40 days. So why the 40, day, 40 days? Health officials 
may have, may have prescribed a 40-day quarantine. Why? Because the number had great symbolic and religious significance to the Italian Christians. When God flooded the earth, it rained for 40 days, 40 and, days 40 and 40 nights. nights. Yep. And Jesus fasted Phil in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days. That's amazing. So I there never you knew that. No, never knew that. That's amazing. So, all right, here we go. That's uh, that's our first one. Let's move on to uh, nursery rhyme number two. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Okay, so we just heard it. I think we all know the story of Humpty Dumpty. He sat on a wall. He had a great fall. None of the king's men could put him back together again. Neither could their horses, Phil. Mm -hmm. It's one of those classic kind of beloved nursery rhymes that generations have grown up with. But like we said in the intro, as with a lot of these iconic old tales, though, things aren't what they seem. And that's certainly the case here. Not at all. Incredibly, the original Humpty Dumpty wasn't an egg as he's always portrayed, but he was most likely a cannon. So you, you want me to believe that this fragile little egg was actually a cannon? We're talking artillery. Sure. All right. right. Let's go follow, from an egg to a cannon. Let's follow me on this. So for the most part, we know children's TV shows, picture books, and anything along those lines continue to depict the character Humpty Dumpty in one of two ways either as a human with a strangely egg-like quality mm -hmm. in the way his head is shaped and his body is shaped, or really just a plain old egg. Right. Right. Uh, DC Comics even created a villain named Humpty Dumpty. You know, his real name was Humphrey Dumpler, but he was a nemesis for Batman, whose only real crime, you know, is his compulsive desire to take apart and try and fix all the mechanical items he came across. But as supervillains go, Humpty Dumpty is less than stellar. And as depictions of the original Humpty Dumpty go, the whole egg thing really didn't cut it, Phil. Okay. If you want to know where the iconic image of Humpty as an egg came from, you've got to take a look back at Lewis Carroll's similarly beloved novel, Through the Looking Glass. Huh. Okay. Yep. And the original story predates Carroll's tale and take on the character. According to a number of military historians, Humpty Dumpty was the name of a cannon used by the royalists during the English Civil War. The English Civil War raged from 1642 to 1649. And in June of 1648, Humpty Dumpty, the cannon, was stationed on the walls of Colchester. Oh, okay. All right. I think I know where you're going with this. Go ahead. It was one of the several cannons erected to try and keep Parliament's army from taking over the city. The next month, however, the parliamentary forces heavily damaged the walls beneath Humpty Dumpty with their own artillery. And you can guess where this is going. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall and broke into pieces. Oh, man. As for the business with all of the king's horses, all of the king's men, it seems that those lines can actually be taken literally. All right. Because now that we know Humpty is a cannon. Right. This right. makes a little bit more sense. The royalists or the cavaliers were very much the king's men fighting in support of King Charles I, who would go on to lose the war and lose his head, oh. paving the way for Oliver Cromwell's brief stint is what he referred to himself as Lord Protector. That's unbelievable. And there's your explanation on Humpty Dumpty. Let's take a look at number three. Look up, my baby, in 
All right. Well, as we keep going, Phil, I think the longer we get into this or the, the closer we get to number five, it almost seems like the creepier some of these songs become because as I'm listening to this song, knowing what I know about the first two, something's got to be going on with Rockabye Baby. And I'm sure our listeners are thinking the same thing. So let's chat. Oddly enough, Rockabye Baby actually refers to the Glorious Revolution of 1688, also known as the Bloodless Revolution of 1688 to, uh, to 1689 in England. So what is this? Let's let's talk about that. Well, the Glorious Revolution or, or the Bloodless Revolution involved the overthrow of a Catholic king, James II, who was replaced by his Protestant daughter, Mary, and her Dutch husband, William of Orange, all without any blood being lost, hence the name Bloodless Revolution. So apparently the baby in the nursery rhyme, though, was supposedly the, the son of King James II, many believing that it was actually someone else's child that they smuggled into the birthing room so they could make sure there was an heir to the Roman Catholic throne. And many believe that the, the term wind could actually be the Protestant forces blowing in uh, and sweeping away. And actually wind in the original Greek language of the New Testament can also mean spirit as well. So there, there might be some might be some weight to that, that claim. The cradle is said to be uh, the hope that the throne would be overthrown and eventually, of course, fall. But many of this could be legend. And I, I want to mention this because it does... There's a lot of questions around this song, so I, I want to be clear. So I'm going to I'm going to give you a direct quote from songfacts.com about this lullaby. Here we go. Several rumors exist about Rockabye Baby's origin, none of which has really been proven. It was one of the one of the ones that that they had claimed was it was written by a pilgrim who sailed to America on the Mayflower. During this trip, the young passenger observed the way Native American women rocked their babies in birch bark cradles suspended from the high branches of a tree allowing the wind to rock the baby to sleep. Now, Phil, when you and I had spoken about doing this chat, one of the first things you said about this, this song was that very thing. Now, you didn't, you didn't say anything about the Mayflower, but you did say, hey, are you referring to right. the Native Americans? The Native Americans. So, Phil, you mentioned this. I think out of all the different lullabies and nursery rhymes we researched, this one had the most, by far, interpretations. Absolutely, yeah. And that was the one I was familiar with. Yeah, yeah. And it, the more I, I did some research on this, I didn't find too much about the Mayflower portion of that of that rumor. But like you said, I did see an awful lot about the Native American side of women rocking their babies in these in these bark cradles. So uh, definitely, definitely possibility. Now, the next rumor, according to songfacts.com, is with a woman named Effie Crockett, a relative of, of course, Davy Crockett, writing the lyrics in 1872 while babysitting a restless child. Indeed, as it says, Crockett, known as Effie, I, Cannon, um, has a filmography containing over 175 credits for the extensive use of Rockabye Baby in film and television. Now, here's another crazy thing. It was only, and this is apart from songfacts.com, this is a side note here, it was only until a few years later that this was actually in the public domain. So I think she was actually probably still receiving royalties for this, which that's beside the point. Um, another rumor was it was inspired by an English family, the Kenyans, who lived in a vast treehouse fashioned out of ancient yew tree. Another one was that author Gerald Massey ties the rhyme uh, into an Egyptian mythology, uh, claiming that the baby is the god Horus. Now, 
all of these are claims. And like you said, this is just kind of surrounded in legend, but nonetheless, pretty interesting. Phil, is there one that you buy into more than the others after having seen these claims? Yes and no. I think I think the 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 one about King James, the Glorious Revolution, I think that holds the most weight. And I think that's probably the most credible. I think the second on the list is the Native American mm-hmm. uh, twist to this. But certainly uh, quite interesting and maybe not as dark as some of the other ones, um, but still a lot of legend surrounding it. Well, I would encourage our listeners to, to listen to the next one we have for them Absolutely. because we're going from bloodless to one of the more bloodier examples of a nursery rhyme. I would agree. Let's hit him with number four. Three blind mice, three blind So, Phil, Three Blind Mice is actually one of these nursery rhymes where you look at the, I guess, lyrics, the words to it, and you do have some questions. I mean, these are some some disturbing lyrics, for back of, lack of a better word. Yeah, especially after having the first couple rounds of this. Right. Um, I'm, but I'm really curious. I know nothing about the history of this, so I'm really curious what you have for it. So the origin of the words to the Three Blind Mice rhyme are based in English history. The farmer's wife refers to the daughter of King Henry VIII, who was Queen Mary I. Now, Mary was a very staunch Catholic, and her violent persecution of Protestants led to the nickname Bloody Mary. Okay, very fitting, sure. And the reference to farmer's wife in Three Blind Mice refers to the massive estates which she and her husband, King Philip of Spain, possessed. Okay. All right. The Three Blind Mice were three noblemen who adhered to the Protestant faith, who were convicted of, uh, convicted of plotting against the queen. Now, she didn't have them dismembered. She didn't have them blinded, uh, as referenced in Three Blind Mice, but she did have them burnt at the stake. And a lot of people believe that the reference to them running, watch how they run, oh, don't say was it. their body's reaction no. to being burned. Yes. Oh. So, yeah, England's first female monarch was actually Mary I. She, she was only... She lived from 1516 to 1558. She only ruled for five years, but because of her very, you know, strict adherence to Catholicism and trying to rid, um, you know, England of Protestantism, she earned that that nickname Bloody Mary, which really has resonated throughout history. I mean, that's what people remember her for. That's incredible. Yeah, I, yeah, I had no idea that you were going to say that. So uh, that that's one of those ones where you look at the the lyrics and the words and you think, okay, these. This can't be good. And let's and, just sing it to our kids and, right. and have this be part of our culture. That's that's pretty incredible. Right. Yeah. And now we know that they are, in fact, not good. Right. <laughs> so we have number five coming up next. Here we go. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. All right, Phil. So number five here, London Bridge is falling down. There's a lot of historical debate with this one. Uh, it, it actually starts in 46 BC with a Roman bridge. Now, remember, the Romans used uh, boats and they, they kind of lined them up. They put a, uh, some boards across those boats, and that's what they considered bridges back then. Pretty ingenious for that, that time period. I think this is a little bit far-fetched. However, the bridge that they used was actually called London Bridge, okay. and it crossed the Thames River. Um, but the more I did some research on it, that's kind of highly unlikely that this is where this started. 
And I think you'll find out why the deeper we get into this. So some say the the history of this story of this this um, nursery rhyme took place in 1014 with a Viking leader by the name of Olaf. Now, my kids are going to love that part, mm-hmm. um, taking down what they called London Bridge in a military battle. It was wooden, uh, had to be rebuilt, obviously, after the, the, the battle. So once they started the process rebuilding the London Bridge, they then reconstructed it out of stone rather than wood. Kind of smart to do that. Uh, for longevity purposes. The person who did that was a priest by the name of Peter of Cold Church, and it took about 33 years to build. Wow. So it was around 1209. It was officially completed, and it lasted for over 600 years. So from a historical perspective, this is probably the origin of it. Because, I mean, let's face it, if it's going to take place during a time period, let's have it take place during that 600 years of it being uh, part of the history. So I think this is the, the time period that we really should be focusing on rather than the Roman history of London Bridge. And it seems like myth to actually having, you know, documentation that, right. this, was, yeah. that this was done. I mean, That's this a great is a point. historic event that they, you know, actually took down information about. Absolutely. Yeah. So in the 600 year lifespan of this bridge, 19 arches, it actually had homes, shops, apartments, uh, on top of the bridge, wow, which is pretty incredible, especially if, if you look up uh, some pictures about this. You might even post this on some of our social media. It was quite, it was quite uh, impressive for for that time period, especially. So it did feel, fall apart periodically, like any other bridge does, and it needed constant repair. I mean, you got to think the sheer weight of of all these um, apartments and shops and all that. It, it would have to uh, need repair quite often, probably more so than if it wasn't on there. But it did fall apart in the 1800s. And they remade it yet again and took the shops and apartments off the top and then widened it. But this is the part where I, I think is really interesting. In 1968, they took apart the entire bridge, redid the whole uh, London Bridge concept. And now it's just kind of like a typical old bridge. There's no real wow factor to this at mm-hmm. all. But guess where they shipped it? To Lake Havasu City in Arizona. So I'm glad you didn't wait any longer for me to try and guess, though, because I think we would have been here a while for me to guess Arizona. But, I mean, who would ever thought that the, the actual original London Bridge that was reconstructed and shipped is sitting in the United States somewhere and no one really even knows? Any idea as to how it got there? Not a clue. Who purchased it Not, or whether it was a gift of some sort? Honestly, we would have to do uh, some some pretty extensive research on that because I... The, the research I did, I wanted to focus more on the the, the right. uh, nursery rhyme itself, but I, honestly, we we got to do maybe a follow yeah. up with that one because it's quite incredible how that landed in Arizona. Or pose the question to our listeners: if there's somebody out there that actually knows, you know, that seems fairly random, how London Bridge um, ended up in Arizona, reach out to us. Absolutely, yeah. Educate us a little bit on that. So now the current London Bridge, which I said is is quite normal, it's quite ordinary, um, because now there are multiple bridges crossing the Thames River. So that's that's one thing where it's kind of like as as you look towards the history of architecture and that kind of thing, some of the more current stuff just doesn't have a, as much character. And this would would fit that uh, pretty, pretty incredibly close anyway. So how about this last part? Who's my fair lady? You know, the very last part is my fair lady. Well, some say it's the Virgin Mary to cast off the Vikings and any other threats that, that the London Bridge uh, posed or anything like that. So- okay. Some say it's Matilda of Scotland. Some say it's Eleanor of Province. But I think the majority of what I've researched, especially for that time period, I think it's more towards uh, the Virgin Mary. So my fair lady, even though they used that term fair lady uh, 
you know, for people of power, mm -hmm. like a Matilda of Scotland or Eleanor of Providence. So either way, my personal opinion, I think it's referencing Virgin Mary, uh, but that is where we get My Fair Lady from. Very interesting, Phil. All right, so let's go into the bonus. We're going to go to a number six right now. Even though it's top five, uh, let's go into number six. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. So our bonus nursery rhyme is Jack and Jill. And with some of the other ones that you heard from us today, this one has several renditions, several interpretations. I, I'm looking at all three, Phil. They all, all three seem rather feasible. Although the, the first one I'm going to share with you guys I think is probably number three. Yeah. I'm not buying into it as much, but they were talking about origins all the way from Scandinavia, an origin out of uh, colonial France, uh, an origin out of England. So this is kind of interesting. The first one attributes it to an old Norse myth where the moon referred to as Mani steals two children, Hayuki and Bill from <laughs> earth. The kidnapping happens as the two children are collecting water from a well. And it's believed that the story was told to young children to try and prevent them from going out alone after dark, which is understandable. We talked about in the intro how a lot of this was based around, you know, teaching them principles and, and, and ways of, of staying safe. It's hypothesized that over time and after many renditions of the tale was told, Hayuki eventually would become Jack and Bill would simply become Jill. So while this is one possible origin of the nursery rhyme, it doesn't account for rather an important part of the story, which is the verse in which the children come tumbling down. And furthermore, some people who are critical of Jack and Jill originating out of the old North myth also contribute this entirely to, we're talking about the waxing and the waning cycles of the moon, its impacts on the tides, mm -hmm. how important that was to the uh, Norwegians and, and the Scandinavians. They were a seafaring group. And that this has nothing to do with the Jack and Jill nursery rhyme at all. It's talking more about the moon. Wow. All right. I, that's a very, I, I never knew any of that. Um, but I think this next one, uh, I think will probably relate more to the listeners too, because I mean, we're talking French Revolution for this interpretation. So a pretty popular interpretation of this rhyme. And it tells the story of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette during the French Revolution in the 18th century. So here we are. King Louis XVI is now beheaded, losing his crown, which I think is an interesting interpretation during what, what is known, of course, as the Reign of Terror. So a little bit after that, you have Marie Antoinette also beheaded. And here we go. Came tumbling after. Um, and that seems to fit well. But here are some problems with that. The earliest printing of this rhyme is actually before the events of the Reign of Terror. So it, I wonder if, if there's maybe a little bit a little bit of doubt um, cast on this interpretation, but it does seem feasible uh, for this sense. That does seem feasible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of like this one. That, that one seems to fit. So if you're listening, here's option three. Okay, we'll see which one you guys believe is, is the most believable. In a small town in Somerset, England called Kilmersden, there's an actual hill 
on actual hill now called Jack and Jill Hill that locals believe inspired the nursery rhyme. Hmm. Their story involves a young couple, Jill, a local spinster, and Jack, her mysterious lover. In this version of events, Jill becomes pregnant by Jack, and the couple is overjoyed. But when Jack goes up the hill to collect some water, he's tragically killed by a dislodged boulder. Oh, wow. I know. We're, some of these are crazy. <laughs> wow. Jill right. then dies of a broken heart shortly after, and the small town of Kilmersden band together to raise Jack and Jill's son together. Today, there are six stone markers that line that hill, each one with a verse from the poem. And at the top of the hill, there's a well and a plaque dedicated to Jack and Jill, as well as two tombstones. So I was kind of in the the French Revolution camp after Mm -hmm. I read that. I might be over on this side here now. This is that's a pretty compelling story. That's a good story. Yeah, and obviously that that entire town has embraced that. Right. Um, but I, I'm I'm kind of in the same camp as you are. But it just goes to show, you know, the metaphors, the interpretations. You know, sometimes we we hear something so often, Phil. Yeah. We've grown up, and now our kids are growing up with these nursery rhymes. It's interesting to kind of you know delve deeper, dig deeper and find out the, their actual meanings and, and the history associated with so many of these. And I'm going to make a prediction. The last time we did a top five in which we ranked them, you know, it was with the top five war movies. And we got so much great feedback from that um, as well as some critiques, which we love. We love just talking history and having discourse about that. I'm going to, I'm going to predict that we get a lot of feedback from this episode as well. And I'm, Almost certain that we're going to have another follow-up episode to this because there are so many nursery rhymes. And we just, like we said earlier, we just picked our top five, added a bonus um, in no particular order, and then just talked about it. I bet our listeners are going to jump in on this and uh, give us some suggestions of some maybe some more nursery rhymes we need to look up. Because, I mean, there's so much history involved in each one of these things. Yeah, I think you're right, and I hope you're right, because we've really enjoyed doing this and researching it and looking into some of these. And, and if we are, you know, missing something, reach out to us on Facebook, on Instagram. You know, you can email us, go to our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com. Let us know what you know and what we might have missed. We'd love to do a follow-up episode on this. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.